You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. I'm a little bit fearful of putting this episode out because like I said, I am not certain of how people would receive. I don't think I've ever talked about my experiences with psychedelic personally. At the same point in time, I think in the right container, in the right context, it is one of the most powerful things and the most beautiful transformative experiences that you could do using an external source or external medium of some sort. While yes, inner work is powerful and one must do it and coaching is powerful and one must do it, this is an additional thing that you could do that would really help you discover, diagnose, reform, transform, do everything. And and I really want to advocate for it. And I'm concerned, I don't know how people will receive it. So I'm just being real and vulnerable about it. So Austin, let's start from the start. How did you get into what you now kind of bring to the world, which is ceremonial? Well, first for context, Ceremonia is an entheogenic church, which means that we serve psilocybin mushrooms and ayahuasca as sacraments, as a vehicle for us to commune with the divinity within and and our higher self. So how I got to that is three years ago, I sat with ayahuasca for the first time. Now, ayahuasca is a plant medicine that Mm -hmm. is a very potent psychedelic with thousands of years of history in indigenous tribes. But at that time, when I went to an ayahuasca retreat, I went in with a chip on my shoulder because I had done psychedelics maybe a hundred times recreationally over many Burning Men's and festivals and whatnot. And so I thought, you know, what could this teach me? And the first night that I sat under the medicine, I was able to have a conversation with my father who had passed about three years previous to that Mm. and introduced to him my wife. And I didn't really even know how much I needed that. It was so visceral for me, a lived experience. So after that first night, I felt, I was like, okay, I'm good. I can go home happy because I feel so transformed already. But then the second night, I had a curiosity. I asked the shaman who was a practicing clinical psychologist for many years, you know, I have very little recollection of my memory. Remembering to my childhood is a complete block And even a few years back, it's just a a haze, a fog. And she said, well, as a psychologist, we would put you through brain scans and do years of talk therapy, but tonight you ask the medicine. And so I went in with that intention of just looking to discover what's going on here. And as I went under the psychedelic, I started to relive my memories in vivid, vivid detail. I could remember my locker combination from high school. I could remember passages that I read in books. And I was just traveling back in time, you know, my life flashing before my eyes in in a sense, until I was a child under sheets. And in that experience, I felt horny. And I was like, how is this possible that a child can, can feel that way? I came out of it. And when I went back in, I realized that I was sexually molested at the Mm -hmm. age of four. Mm -hmm. And that, singular experience led me to repress 
all of my memory. So then I started traveling forward in time and reliving with this new understanding of self, my sexual confusion as a kid. I was a bully as a kid and just the shame, the guilt and the confusion that I felt at having that experience at such a young age and going all the way forward to the present moment when I was lying on a yoga mat in the rainforest Mm -hmm. with 49 other people all under their own medicine Mm -hmm. and just coming out of it with such gratitude, an immense amount of gratitude for every step of my journey that led me to the revelation and to the person that I am. Mm. And since that time, I've really begun to devote more and more of my life to this path of the inner work and and to plant medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I feel so called to share with the world now. So I've never done ayahuasca. I've done mushrooms, psilocybin, and I've done other psychedelics to explore. What do you think is the difference between ayahuasca and other plant medicines or medicine generally? Yeah, it's a great question and often asked very frequently. First of all, it's my belief and what the science sort of shows is the primary determinant of efficacy and harm reduction in the psychedelic experience is the feeling of safety. Mm-hmm. Okay, So there's two kinds of safety. There's outer safety, which is your environment, your setting, and there's inner safety, which is the safety that you feel with being with your own content, your emotions, your beliefs, the stories that come up, right? And that's set, mindset. And you may have heard of set and setting. Mm -hmm. So there are so many different psychedelics that are available, both natural and synthetic. I believe that even though psychedelics do have differences, Primarily what's of most concern is how safe do people feel, which means the facilitator, you know, the center, the people around, the pre-work that we've had, the tools that we have to enhance our capacity to be with our own content. You know? mm-hmm. Now, with regards to the differences in psychedelics, they all engage us differently in the mind, the body, and the spirit. Ayahuasca has a very deep tradition behind it. In fact, I would say the deepest spiritual or shamanistic tradition. Many, many medicine songs are made chanting, serenading ayahuasca as a spirit, you know? And so there's a large history there. And ceremonies with ayahuasca tend to be just very different than other ceremonies in that regard. And so the setting there is really, really different. The psychedelic itself is very challenging for the body. You may have heard in ayahuasca, there's a lot of purging, which is vomiting or (laughs) GI issues. Now, there is a shamanistic tradition that the purging is letting go of something. In fact, I've had some of my biggest downloads in life staring into the bottom of a bucket, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like vomiting my guts out Mm -hmm. because I was letting go of shame or letting go of anger or letting go of someone I didn't forgive, you know, and coming into that realization of the power that I have to actuate my higher self. In a psychosomatic sense, I believe that the challenging GI issues actually grounds us into the body. Mm. The body being the vessel for our emotions and our intuition, right? And so, you know, psilocybin has some of that where it can feel a little bit sick, but ayahuasca really has a lot of that. And so when we are in our body, there's this constant messaging from the shamanistic tradition and as well as in the psychological field of surrender, right? And so this invocation to surrender to what's here 
is also an invocation for the mind to allow the body's wisdom and its whispers of truth to listen to it. Does that make sense? It does, it does. It's not a challenge for me, but I know I've had this question asked to me before. How do I know that when I'm under influence of a psychedelic, I have, of course, an alternate reality being revealed to me. Alternate or your own reality, but from a different perspective being revealed to you. And when you're in that state, how do you know the difference between is this the truth or is it something that is just created in that moment? Sure. Like even, let's say, for example, and maybe that would be a good example to lean into it. You said through an ayahuasca experience, you realized that you were molested as a child, as a four-year-old. How do you distinguish between if that is actually what happened versus that's like, you know, something else that just happens to now be your truth? Yeah, totally. Um, so first, there's this concept in the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy field called the Inner Healing Intelligence. Mm. If you read the MAPS manual, MAPS is a nonprofit organization that's been leading the charge of pushing MDMA and psilocybin through the FDA, which is expected to legalize in this year to 2025, federally. The Inner Healing Intelligence is this idea that the mind has the intelligence to heal itself. And I think it's best explained as a metaphor. When you go to a doctor with a wound and the doctor sutures up your wound, it's not the doctor healing you. He's just providing the environment for your body to heal itself. And so the psychedelic is not healing you. The medicine isn't healing you. It's just providing the environment for your mind to heal itself. And so in the MAPS manual, it says, if you see a monster, ask it a question. If you see a window, look through it. If you see a door, walk through it. And that's because it's your mind attempting to let go of the protective layers of the ego and usher you into a place of wholeness. So in a sense, whatever it is your mind shows you is there for a purpose. And that purpose clarifies and purifies the more that we can surrender to it. Because we're actually surrendering our own protectors, surrendering to our higher self, to the truth within us. So that's number one. Number two, I think a lot about this concept of knowing versus know about, right? When we read a book, when we read a manual, we know about something. We know about a tool. But the knowing of something is something that is a felt sense internally, right? When we have a knowing, this manifests as intuition. And when we're clear about our knowing, this inner truth that we have, it manifests as inspiration. And so what our mind shows us under the psychedelic experience, does that generate a knowing within us, Right? In a sense, it doesn't actually matter whether or not this event or my recollection of this event or lived experience of this event for me when I was four years old is true or not. What matters is what I do with that content. And what I'm doing with that content is, you know, I could have been in victimhood and said, woe is me, this is messed up, and I'm going to go on a crusade against this kind of thing, right? Versus what we have the power to do is translate, transmute our shadow into the greatest gifts because everything in our life leads us to who we are now in this moment, right? Every moment mm -hmm. we turn left when we could have gone right. Every time we chose A instead of B, it's all led us here. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, 
Beautiful. I want to set a little context for the listeners who may be resisting the ideas that you're presenting. And that's about five, maybe six years ago, I would be somebody who would be like, no way, no way any of the psychedelics do anything, right? And I was totally like, you know, the the narrative of these are drugs and you shouldn't be taking drugs and you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. And I was from that place and I grew up in India where it's even more intense, like it's really looked down upon. And then I lived in Malaysia for a while, which is again one of those countries that I think that you can't even smoke weed or anything like that, right? So it's a pretty intense environment that I was in pretty much all the time where it's really demonized. It's really said that this is not the approach to take in life. This is not the approach to take forward. And then I met my now wife, then partner Nita. And I was in a dark place generally in life at that time because I kind of had a collapsed sense of self in a way. Everything that I thought was true about life was in question because I had set myself up in a way where I became very successful pretty early career-wise. And I thought that's what one was supposed to do because it was my conditioning in my past to say, become really successful in your career and everything else can go to hell. Like everything else falls in place just because you're successful and your money, right? That's kind of what the story was. But that's the story I lived at the time. And I realized that's just really a sad place to be where you're, yes, wealthy, but you don't really have good meaningful relationships with yourself or with anybody else. So I was in this dark place and I couldn't shake myself out of it because I had done all the mental work. I was in the environment of meditation. I was in the environment of everything until Nita, who's now my partner, suggested we would be dating and she said, hey, would you be open to doing MDMA? I was like, oh, you know, these are drugs. I don't know. They'll corrupt your mind, blah, blah, blah. So I used to drink a lot instead, which is mm. now, of course, in retrospect, a terrible idea. But I used to drink a lot at the time to numb myself versus to explore myself or explore my inner self. Right? So she somehow convinced me, she said, okay, let's do what it's not. We're not going to be like in a party setting or we're not doing the wild stuff. We just go into this place. It's a friend's place. We have access to some things and let's do it there. It's going to be a safe environment. I'm going to be there. If you want, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to support you, right? So if you trust me in a container, you know, like kind of like what you said is all you're safe in a way. And so I did it. And that one experience is arguably one of the most transformative personal growth work I've done. It was a few hours, maybe probably six hours, something, five, six hours of most transformative personal growth work I've done because I was not bound by my own stories for those five or six hours. And I think for me, what was true in that circumstance was I had never felt my heart so clearly Mm. that I did in those few hours. Like, holy shit, this is actually me. And if I were to live the rest of my life, this is the only way I would want to live. Like, of course, this happens because of, I think, increased serotonin in your body or something like that, which is what MDMA does. And so your heart feels really open. Chemically, you can find a reason for it. But lived experience wise or knowing wise, what became true for me is that this is a version of me that lives within me. And there's a version of me that is not wondering what people think about him. This is a version of me that lives within me that is more interested in the person that he's talking to than interested in the perception of the person. He's more interested in saying I lived a good life versus saying I lived a rich life or a great life or a fun life or a joyous life. Any of those I would take any day versus a rich life. And rich being rich can be a part of it, but doesn't have to be. 
right? And so all those revelations became more and more present to me and became the version of me that came the next morning was almost like how you, like the experience that you had with ayahuasca where it's almost like, you know, you're releasing so much that suddenly you go, holy shit, I'm so light. I'm so much lighter because I feel like I have, you know, like released all this from my body. After that, I became a really big prominent for my friends to do with this experience. Like I remember one of my friends and especially when they were in our environment a lot more where we were able to take them from antidepressants to no antidepressants simply by doing a very intentional journey. These are not party settings. So just want to be clear, this is not party. This is not that. It's very intentional. It's very healing. It's very conversational. It's very loving where they were on heavy antidepressants and they completely were out of it in a matter of like a month or so by doing two or three journeys where they were really able to release, they were really able to have that communication over the course of like once a week for like two, three weeks, I think, or something like that we did, assisted in a way because it was in a healing setting and so forth with a shaman and everything. And it became like this thing where I was like, shit, this should be everywhere. Everybody should be able to do that because I don't think we will have like fights and violence if we were able to just release so much that we just hold on to because of the perception that we have of the world and the perception that we have of ourselves and perception that we have of what we think is the truth of the world, but it's totally not. So I just wanted to share that experience for anyone that is kind of going, oh, I don't know, this is a little bit tricky as a subject because our listeners tend to be coaches very much in the mind because it is very powerful. And of course, these are the stories that we tell ourselves. And I don't recommend doing it without any support. Absolutely not. I don't think anybody should just go and do it by themselves unless they really know what they're doing, which is, again, something pretty advanced. But until then, doing it assisted, probably one of the most transformative experiences a person can have. What is it that is so powerful about MDMA? Hmm. Well, first, if I may comment on, yeah, for, first, I want to thank you for sharing your story. And it's very powerful. And I'm imagining that the men sitting in front of me today would not be this Ajit, if not oh, for yeah. those experiences and maybe the collection of other experiences that you've had along the way, such as that. In the 50s and 60s, when psilocybin and LSD entered the American sphere, it was the most studied medicine in psychology. It was considered a revolution. More than 100,000 participants, over 1,000 studies. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then in 67, it was banned, largely because of a response to how it was used during the anti-Vietnam conflict. So a lot of that history was lost up until very recently when Harvard, John Hopkins, the Imperial College of London, Cambridge, like started to study this more and more and more. I think Hopkins released a study in 2013. And it shows that in trials with MDMA and with psilocybin, 70% of respondents claimed it to be the most transformative experience of their lives defined as akin to the death of a parent or the birth of a first child. Mm-hmm. Now you're a father. That's yeah. a very transformative experience. What we've observed is through our program, 95% say that it is the most transformative experience of their lives. And that's a powerful number. The science shows that it is at least three times as effective as the most effective treatment, which includes psychiatry, pills, and talk therapy, for treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. Mm. Incredible numbers. And it's about to be federally legalized. So we'll look back on this conversation 10 years from now and be like, okay, that totally made sense back then. And in addition, 12% of America 
uses psychedelics per year. 12%. Oh, wow. That number isn't usually known. Of course, that's vastly mm-hmm. recreational. Oh, but, okay. it is but, recreational. Yeah, okay. but it's a huge number. Mm-hmm. And so this is everywhere. It's valuable and it's worth exploring. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, you asked about MDMA. MDMA is such a gift because yes, as you shared, what it does is it, it opens the floodgates of serotonin, right? Mm-hmm. So that you can have an uninhibited flow of the good chemicals. Now that's neurochemically what happens. But psychologically what happens is really important. And it relates to what happens with other psychedelics, even though MDMA itself is not a psychotropic. It's that our protectors get relaxed, right? And when our protectors get relaxed, we're able to penetrate deeper into what we've been gripping onto and into ourself with a capital S, right? And that's where we get to feel this higher state of being that we know is possible. And you come off that high. The next day, it's a memory, but at least you have a compass, right? You have a compass to show you what's possible, what you can feel in your life if you were to relax those protectors. And MDMA is really good at that. MDMA is particularly great at couples work because Mm -hmm. it allows people to have challenging conversations that would otherwise lead to fighting and to to projecting, etc. But like with the heart open, to be able to hit those levels of vulnerability to break patterns and loops. That is so true. And we have done that as well, therapeutically as well, when we could. I call them peak experiences in life generally. right? Any experience that is a very peak experience that gets you into a state that is a very peak state, something that that can be also very emotional as a state. It doesn't have to be always like peak serotonin state. It could be deeply emotional thing. That is why big accidents and big events in our life create the biggest transformations in our life. Like there are people that we meet all the time, they go, I was in a car accident, I was about to die, I changed my life. Uh, I was X, I was doing Y. And I changed my life after that. And that's mostly because that's a peak experience. It suddenly brings you to the realization that has always been true for you and you've just never accepted it. You've just never said, you know what? I need this in my life. This is how I want to live my life. I do not care about anything else. I do not care if uh, you know I have less or more money. I do not care if my parents are proud of me or not proud of me. This is what I need. This is what I want. And I feel... MDMA does that for you because it really, like you said, it peaks your serotonin. You suddenly go, no protectors, nobody telling you what you should or shouldn't do in the world. You just get a great sense of self. And so you go, shit, this is it. This is what I need. This is who I am, really. This is when all my shit is away from me. All the crap that I tell myself is not holding me back. That's what I am. This is the truest, most honest version of me. And to me, LSD did the same is in a trance-like state, which is a psychedelic. And again, I'm not recommending go do it by yourself. That's not how I did it either. I did it with the support of the right individuals who were there to, to like have the right set and setting for me. So if you do that experience, what it does or what it did for me was it took away all, and it was, I don't know if that's true for all the experiences. I'd love to know for you how that is. But for me, what that experience did was it took away all the constraints I had put on what's possible for me. I had the clearest vision of my future when I was under the experience of LSD. 
Uh, while MDMA made me really present to who I am as a person, who I want to be day after day, every single day, which is why love and service became my highest values, is because in that moment, I was like, I am a person of love and service. That's all I want to do all day, every day. That's what gives me joy. I do not care about anything else. Right. Like This is where I show up as my highest self. This is where I feel I'm fulfilled. This is the place where I'm in bliss. Love and service is also your Wi-Fi password. It's literally, my, <laughs> for anybody who was at Sarah, it was more love and service is the password, is the Wi-Fi password. And it's just true for me, right? And then the second thing, and, and what LSD did for me was it, it really, like it was a different response altogether because suddenly I wasn't thinking what's possible. It just showed me what's possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it wasn't going, oh, you know, two plus two about. must lead to four. There was no logic to what was being presented to me it was just clear to me. It was just like, I was like, I had a channel that was open that was like, holy shit, this is where I'm going. This is a clean path that feels like the direction I should be walking in. And that was powerful for me. That was, I, I've, I've had a lot of sense of clarity generally in life, but that was another level of sense of clarity that was 20 years into the future, not next two, three, four years, which I'm generally a clear person. I can have that sense of clarity, but 20, 25 years into the future, like that's life. That's where I'm going. So what's your experience around LSD? First, I just want to acknowledge, again, your, your powerful experience with this and the clarity coming from something much more than your mind, right? Again, the difference between knowing and knowing about. I'm mm-hmm. imagining that clarity was a felt sense within you. Mm-hmm. And maybe you didn't necessarily know exactly how you would do the things, but you know that those things are important to you. They're part of your values, which is a codification of your truth. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining that you then went and pursued that with vigor, because that was your, what your compass showed you. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. That's really powerful. LSD is an incredible psychedelic. So I once asked a friend, Rick Doblin, who runs MAPS, what's the difference between the various psychedelics? And he said, what they found is the primary determinant of efficacy as it relates to the psychedelic itself is the duration of the experience. Mm-hmm. Now, Psilocybin lasts somewhere between three and five hours. Ayahuasca around the same. LSD lasts 12 hours. Uh (laughs) As you know, it is a journey. And in that space and time, there is no space and time. So it feels like an eternity, right? What that affords is the ability to process something deeply, right? In the psychedelic experience, we get into what's called a non-causal field, which is normally we live in a linear field, like if A, then B, right? Mm -hmm. I do this, this causes that. Mm-hmm. But in the psychedelic experience, everything's happening everywhere all at once, like the film. And so we get this experience of totality, right? And to have that in LSD, it allows us, I find LSD to be more cognitive and allows us to piece a lot of disparate ideas, memories, experiences into something that makes sense, right? Mm. To create a relationship. For example, for me, creating a relationship between my experience of having the trauma as a kid and repression to my lived experience of having confused sexual identity to my lived experience of all the businesses that I created to my lived experience of traveling the world and hiding from myself because I was afraid of failure and then finally getting to the place of sitting in that moment under the psychedelic and it just all made sense that it all happened for a reason Mm -hmm. for me, right? And that reason was to, and like you, love and service, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so LSD has that, that magical power of taking lots of randomness and just making sense of it. 
And that's an empowering feeling in itself, just the very nature of that, right? Mm -hmm. To actually have the felt sense that we are here on this earth for purpose, for meaning. And that's such a strong foundation from which to live life and to create. Oh, 100%. We work with a lot of coaches and trainers and educators, and I think the biggest challenge, actually, so funny, I was training one of our groups today, and one of the biggest things that a lot of them struggle with, because they're all very successful individuals. These were not coaches, these are actually entrepreneurs and leaders in different places, and a lot of them were like, uh, I don't have a challenge in my life. I make a lot of money, I have a comfortable life, like there's no meaning and purpose to do anything. Like mm. if they didn't do anything, mm-hmm. they're going to be fine, mm-hmm. right? And so when you talk to a group like this, suddenly you go, okay, then what will drive you, right? Totally. What is it that you would wake up in the morning and say today, you know, I'm going to create the best work for today. Like I'm not even saying you got to chase something. I'm just saying for you to be fired up every single day and say, you know what, today is going to be an amazing day. You got to create something. Just yeah. sitting on the couch watching Netflix is not going to make it a great day. Like, let's be real. Like, you can do that for a day if you need an off day, but that's pretty much it. After that, that's not fun, right? Fun is when you create something. And creating could be business, art, whatever that is that you want to create. And our conversation kind of went into that direction where I was like, if you don't have a sense of purpose and meaning or a direction or a chase, if you want to call it that, you are not going to be fired up. There is no way to fire you up. You're not struggling for food. You're not, right. you know, like then you don't need a purpose, right? Then you're like, I need food. <laughs> right? yeah. I need to right. feed a family. Like, screw this. I need to go. Maslow's I have a chase. Needs. Yeah, yeah. It's like you, you're going to have a default purpose. You're going to have a chase. And I think what you're really saying is for individuals like that and individuals, like all those, a lot of times our coaches, teachers, they tend to be individuals that are affluent in many ways. They have some sense of income or some way of making money. And coaching is the new passion that they have. And so they're comfortable kind of in their life. They don't really need to make the business work today. They can make it work in six years and it'll be fine. Uh, Or 16, (laughs) it'll be fine, which is why a lot of them don't make it work. Is because it's just one of those things that they really want to do. That's their calling, that's their purpose, but they don't have clarity. Mm -hmm. They don't have a sense of how does this make sense. They don't have a sense of why should it make sense. And I think what I'm really hearing is that is where this experience under LSD could be an interesting experience for an individual like that, that is going, it's not making sense. I need to find my fuel. I need to find my fire. And maybe that is a good time for them to consider, again, under not recreationally, actually as something that somebody takes at your church and however that is, and many of the places that do allow that. I don't know if that's actually allowed at yours, but but wherever it's allowed and wherever it's permitted and is under guided experience, one must experiment with it because it can bring the tremendous amount of sense of clarity. Yeah, we work with a lot of high performers as well. So we work with Fortune 500 executives, Silicon Valley, unicorn founders, Ethereum, blockchain founders, etc., right? And what's really interesting about that cohort is they all share certain commonalities. One is they're risk takers, mm-hmm. right? And number two, there's something that drove them to work 16 hours a day, you know, to push that extra mile to build. Mm-hmm. Usually it's some initial spark of inspiration, but over time that gets lost. And we deal with a lot mm-hmm. of people that have burnout. I'm sure you do as well, right? Mm-hmm. One of the core of our integration program, so integration is where we take the big transformative experience and then 
we work on integrating it into our lives. And it's very much a coaching paradigm. Is Our integration program is revolved around what I call the enlightened vision. Spiritual teacher Ramdas shares that everyone achieves enlightenment in the end. Because in that final breath, there is that final surrender, the final letting go, right? Where everything that happened in life just distills down to this one moment of what's it all for, right? So what we invoke is for people to walk through the arc of life from being born to being this pure child full of imagination to becoming a teenager to being an adult and fielding all that responsibility to being old age and wise and then finally lying on that deathbed and asking who's in the room with you who have you not forgiven that would be there you know what did you create in your life that would lead you to pass with great peace and love in your heart what values did you devote your life to when the times got tough when did you say, I'm going to aim for my North Star, right? When the entire crowd said, don't do that, but you knew it to be true, right? Those are the important questions that will lead us to that inevitable end because everybody's going to pass. And we don't know if it's 50 years from now or if it's tomorrow. So finding what that is now is of utmost importance. The second thing I'd like to share is, so a lot of, people try to deconstruct purpose, this notion of purpose, right? And I think it's most often done in a psychological sense. Like what's driving you? Where do you feel enjoyment, et cetera? I agree with all that. And I think there is a spiritual layer too. That consciousness, like all of life is experienced through consciousness and all of life is experienced presently. Even when we remember something in the past or we project into the future that's happening now in our present moment through consciousness. And consciousness seeks to know itself, to be whole. I think that the primary mechanism of consciousness is to believe that our experience of reality is true. That when I feel angry, I can recognize that. When I feel sad, I allow myself to be sad, right? What I perceive is actually true for me. Because when we were kids and we started crying or getting angry, mommy and daddy saying, don't cry, don't get angry, we started to doubt ourselves. We started to doubt the truth within us. Now, when we're deeply connected with our inner truth, that is a level of clarity, of intuition that is powerful to follow. There's this line that I love. Sometimes my intuition leads me wrong, but it's the only thing that's ever led me right. Mm. So the very nature of listening to our inner truth comes from the complete integration of all of our parts, the complete okayness with how I look, how I feel, how I think, and having total self-acceptance, which then can upgrade into self-love. And so purpose, what I've observed in ushering more than 300 founders through their journeys, is the purpose is often related to their desire for wholeness. That if they have disowned parts, like for me, you know, around sexuality, a disowned part, that purpose then drives me to reconsolidate that into my lived experience, mm-hmm. right? It's often related to our parents, our mother and father. You know, my father, his shadow is manipulation. He was really good at getting what he wanted by manipulating people. Mm-hmm. My mother's side shadow was people-pleasing, savior complex. And so when I had both, I was constantly manipulating people to save them, which nobody likes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And as I did my inner work and it was able to bring that into the light, 
the same energy I applied to manipulation on my father's side, I could provide guidance with consent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the same energy that I applied to saving people in the light that is service. Mm -hmm. And so now, finally leading a path of service and guidance, which is so much more energetically pleasing and enjoyable than Mm -hmm. what was in the shadow for me before. Mm. True, true. I think purpose is also our desire for knowing. Mm-hmm. It's also our desire for certainty because we are very uncomfortable in not knowing and not being able to somehow put a thing and say, okay, I need, like, you know, you need something to hold on to. I feel like that's our that's humanity's shadow in a way that we are so driven by power and certainty and power on certainty a lot of the times that we've chosen to... So I love science. I have nothing against science. At the same point in time, I don't think everything is understandable through science because, like you said, there is a knowing that I don't think there is a scientific explanation a lot of times to why you know something as your truth or as the truth of humanity overall. Mm. Or, or humanity from your point of view, that's what you feel is the truth of humanity. And there's a lot of things science can't explain, does not have an explanation for, or for me it feels like it doesn't have an explanation for. And I think that's where we have to lean into the uncertainty and get comfortable with it and know that when we let go, I think that's kind of the ultimate experience of surrender for me, is to let go of that need for power and certainty and lean into the uncertainty and yet the playfulness of the universe, which I don't know if it's the opposite of power or not, but it's definitely something that I feel is where if we can lean and live from or live into, we've found the true purpose of life maybe, which is to enjoy for what is and while it is, because there will be a point where probably it won't be true. At least that's where I said, and I think it's cognizant of what, what you're saying as well. It's it, it, this whole need for purpose or this understanding of purpose while it's so powerful and so needed because in the moments when you're waking up in the morning and you're saying, fuck, what do I do? <laughs> uh, purpose helps <laughs> because you're like, all right, that's what I'm going for. But at the same point in time, as you lean more into life and get comfortable with it, it it's almost like purpose is, purpose is to kind of just get you to that place of surrender. I think that's really well put. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the word purpose. I like the word values a lot more. Oh, yes. That's a good one. That's a good rephrase. Tell me more. What do you mean by that? I view values as the codification of our inner truth. And it's valuable when we are at a choice point, right? For example, one of my core values is spiritual growth. And so if I have to decide on whether to aim my resources, time, energy, money, that way or this way, I will lean on my values of spiritual growth and my body's a temple and other values that I have codified and say, which ones align, right? Purpose sometimes feels like a destination to get to, to me, or at least the way that I perceive it used externally, right? Whereas values feels more present to me, that it's something that I get to live my life by. Uh, Have you read uh, The Second Mountain by David Brooks? No. Phenomenal book. So New York Times columnist, and it's just one of the best writers I've ever read. He shares that in life, we climb this first mountain built on prestige and accolades and career, et cetera, right? We've both climbed that first mountain. And then we sit atop that mountain and we see other people, meet people who are filled with a level of joyfulness 
that we're like, man, I want that. You know, sometimes it might be a scuba instructor or it might be a poet or whatever, right? And that's when we get to see the second mountain, which is a life built on commitments and values. Mm. And he shares that there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is something fleeting. I'm in mm-hmm. a party, I pop a champagne bottle, I win a race, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. But joy is something deeper and more pervasive. And there are five levels of joy. Physical joy, which is runner's high, group effervescence, sharing vulnerably in a group. Emotional joy, which is the feeling of like carrying your child, right? Mm-hmm. Fourth is spiritual joy, which is a connection with higher power. But he said that the deepest and, and most pervasive level of joy is moral joy, mm-hmm. which is a commitment to values, right? And it creates a feedback loop whereby when I do more spiritual growth, I feel good and it makes me want to commit more to spiritual growth. And so it's this positive feedback loop where I am constantly getting closer and closer into my inner truth and living a life of that truth with a capital T, which is what I think you're you're expressing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I love the second mountain metaphor. <laughs> yeah. You call it metaphor. Yeah. It's beautiful. And it's kind of the experience that both of us have had where we were very successful. I still am and you really still are. But at the same point in time, we said, while this first mountain is great, let's live in the experience of the second mountain. I don't even know if you want to climb the mountain or there's an apex point of it or not, but there is a journey through and journey with the second mountain for sure. And I think that's a very beautiful lived experience. And I think a lot of individuals that are interested in coaching to any degree, using psychedelics or not using psychedelics or just with the mental work or with the physical work, however that is, are interested in the second mountain. 100%. They, they may chase the first mountain, but they're interested because of the kind of and the quality of conversation they want to have with you. I always say there's two reasons somebody would hire you as a coach. Either they have a challenge in life that they absolutely need to overcome. That's the first mountain. Or they're looking for growth, which is the second mountain. And most of the time, if they're affording a coach, they want to go to the second mountain. Most of the time. Totally. Because they have overcome the challenges. They're already high performers in many different ways in their life. And you could, yes, make them even more high performing. And sure, that can be a part of the coaching. But the real experience is when you are able to bring their attention to the second mountain and have them joyously enjoy the experience of even climbing the first one. Right. right? Because there is a power in that. There is a different experience of that. You could be the best uh, entrepreneur in the world, and you could also be infinitely joyous in all levels. And I think that's beauty. And I love the final distinction of values and commitments being the final joy because that's something that is often diagnosed but not often lived, I think. Often we go and we we write down, these are my values. But very rarely do we consider, how do I live it every day? Like, how do I actually live it? It's interesting because many entrepreneurs codify values for their companies. You know, like building culture, it's your your first thing that you do, a mission statement, your vision statement, and your values, <laughs> right? And you look at like Apple or Google and their values are so clear that even after their founders pass away or move on, it drives the company forward, mm-hmm. right? But we don't do that for ourselves. And I think that's a common thing for entrepreneurs. Like a lot of the energy and practices they do in their companies that make them successful, they don't actually do for themselves personally. Yeah. And even one better, Values for relationships are really powerful. Yeah. To say, okay, us too, we're going to agree on these values. And when we're having conflict or dissonance, we'll look at our values and say, you know, what's here right now? Mm-hmm. One of them for my wife and me is positive regard, for mm-hmm. example, to look at each other with an assumption of innocence and curiosity. 
mm-hmm. right? So that we're, we're in dissonance, we can say, hey, what would it be like to embody these values? And it can completely reframe the energy in which we approach each other. Yeah, beautiful. That's why I think me and Nita have had a successful relationship is because that was the first six months, I think it was a six month into our relationship where Nita really sat us down and said, we need to have common values to understand if, firstly, we need to understand each of those values and then we need to have together values Mm. that we agree to, that we will honor. And we need to revisit that every year, which we do. Uh, Towards the end of the year, usually, we would just sit down and go, okay, let's check in. These are our values, this is our priorities, this is what we want in life, and let's do it together, not just by I want this in life and I want this in life. And then you find, oh shit, we don't want the same things anymore. And if that happens, that happens, then you still you find your common ground or common value system. So even if you want different things, you still have a common place to come back to and say this is what we would always have for each other. And I think that's a really powerful exercise for anybody that wants to practice it in their coaching to just have that being facilitated for your clients is powerful. Well, Austin, we could talk for hours on this. If people want to know more about your work and want to get curious about and maybe even come over and join one of the sessions, where would they go? Yeah, so we have a website. It's at ceremoniacircle.org. And the ins- Can you spell it? Because sometimes, you know, spelling-wise, it's in Sure, word, ceremonia right? is in, in Espanol. So it's yeah. C-E-R-E-M-O-N-I-A circle.org. And the Instagram is also at ceremonia circle. And what we facilitate are six-week programs over what we call a three-stage arc called Awaken, Heal, Manifest, meant to be done over one to two years with coaching in between. And it is a powerful experience with psilocybin and with ayahuasca. And what we're doing that I feel really excited about is synthesizing psychology and spirituality of science and shamanism, which is not often done. Usually it's either very shamanistic and has a lot of that indigenous wisdom, but not so grounded in the science and what we know about psychology and trauma-informed space holding. Or it's very medical and doesn't contain some of the higher levels of spirituality and consciousness that's possible uh, that these experiences afford us. So, Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Austin. It was a pleasure talking to you. Oh, oh, oh.